Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. If we haven't met yet, I'm Chloe Roges. I'm the Digital Engagement Director here at Rolling Hills. This week, our Summer Series Masterclass is coming to its conclusion. With our study of chapter 16, we'll have journeyed through all of the Gospel of Mark together. We've seen how Jesus modeled life and how and why we can and should follow in his footsteps. Today, we'll talk about how we should live in God's kingdom today after Jesus' resurrection. Let's explore how we can fulfill his plans for us and continue the work he started and continues to do in us through the Holy Spirit. We're glad you've joined us for this journey. So three cheers for anybody that's made it through this entire series with us this summer. And I know there probably was some sort of week where you were traveling or unavailable to be here on Sunday. And so you probably checked back in and listened to the message that you missed so that you could not miss a single moment of what's been happening in the book of Mark all 16 chapters. Today, chapter 16, I'm glad that you guys are here, and I'm excited to see the things that might come alive for us today. Um, So this week, I was listening to a news article, and it was um, new information for me. I did not cross-check it. I didn't look it up on any other source to verify it. Um, I was basically just alarmed by it. Um, We have in our bodies an entire multi-organism ecosystem growing. Now you're like, why? That's not news, Nick Allen. Everybody knows that there's lots of different organisms growing like under their fingernails, gross, or inside their mouth, under the, like gross. Yeah. I did not know about this particular one. Like an um, entire multi-organism ecosystem growing inside of our belly buttons. Didn't, didn't know this. Um, was completely unaware. Scientists are literally all the time discovering brand new, never-before-been-discovered organisms inside of the bacteria, stay with me, that's inside of the contents of a person's belly buttons, like living things all up in there. And I was alarmed at first, but then I pondered the question, well, would it be any better if there were dead things up in there? Like, I don't know, like maybe living things? that I'm not exactly sure. But I also did not know what to do with the information that I received. And I don't know that they actually supposed anything for us in the article or in the news report that I was supposed to do with any of the information that I received. Like, I don't actually know what scientists do with the information that they receive once they discover said organisms growing up in, and you know, some belly buttons are deeper than others, and so there might be a whole host of all the kinds of things growing in there, but I don't know what to do with it. Like, I don't know what to do with that little piece of information aside from come on a Sunday morning and say it to you guys so that you're now aware of the fact too. But I don't know this morning what to tell you to do with that particular piece of information. Should you donate your belly button to science one day? I'm not exactly sure if that's possible or what they would do with it if you did. But there is a purpose 
There, there is a purpose for the information that we gather when we read this book. And it is supposed to swell up and do something in us that requires something from us. James, we're not there because we're dancing in the book of Mark this whole summer, but James 1.22 literally says to us that we're not supposed to just be hearers of the word only. We're supposed to do what it says. Like there's supposed to be some sort of active participatory response whenever we dive into this word and figure out what it means. You have to believe what this word says and somehow apply it to your life. That's discipleship. That spiritual growth, it requires something from us. It's not just knowledge, there's an application to it. So, so maybe just take a moment and, and recall to yourself, how have you grown in this series? Hopefully not just in knowledge, but in some sort of participatory action in the way that you follow and acknowledge and trust in Jesus. Kind of the first point that's in your message and worship guides this morning is this idea. We will always do well to trust in God's words. Like he literally says over and over and over again in multiple places and in different kinds of phrasing, I told you so. Like it's literally all over and it's not in this like cocky condescending kind of way. Although if anybody could be cocky and condescending, it's God on high. But he literally tells us over and over and over again, I told you so. Like so we are always would do better in our lives. Like we would always do better in our lives to to trust God's word, to trust specifically Christ's words and trust for us. Like, we have to always be reminded, it's more than words. Like, that's a song from the 80s, more than words. Like, it's more than words. Like, our trust in Christ is more than the words that we say or even the internal feelings that we have. It's alive. Like, there's something living in there that we should feel and that we respond to because God's word is that way. There's three different moments, more if you count all the Gospels, but three specifically that we've looked at in the Gospel of Mark this summer. One, on the way to Caesarea Philippi in Mark chapter 8, Jesus literally began to teach them that the Son of Man must, like he's giving them a a taste of what's going to come in the future. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. And after three days rise again, he spoke plainly about this. So in Mark chapter 8, he told them everything that was going to happen in Mark chapter 14 and 15, and yet they were still so confused about what's going on. But scripture says he told them plainly. It's the Greek word parhesia, and it literally means without ambiguity or, this is a word that I mispronounce sometimes because I have to look up and remind myself what it means, circumlocution. Circumlocution. It's literally without ambiguity or circumlocution, which is the use of many words where fewer would do, especially in a deliberate attempt to be vague or evasive. Like, and I'm all familiar with using a whole lot of words when only a few would do. Hello, I'm a preacher. Like, we do that. Like, we use a whole lot of words when actually a few would suffice. So I am gifted. Maybe it's a, a Holy Spirit gift in circumlocution. But somehow or another, when Jesus spoke those words to them that day, He boiled it down to just what was necessary. The few words that they needed to know. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be handed over. The chief priest and the elders are going to reject me and they're going to kill me and I'm going to come back to life. Like he told that to them 
plainly, post-transfiguration, after Jesus had gone up to the mountain and James and Peter and John had seen him literally transform before them. They're now passing through Galilee once again in Mark chapter 9, verses 31 and 32. Because he was teaching his disciples, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, he will rise. Plainly, there again, he said the same thing, but they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Like afraid to raise their hand and ask for a little bit of clarity, like, you know, in a classroom. We tell this because kids start back to school tomorrow. We say, oh, the only dumb question is the one that you don't ask. So guys, raise your hand, ask questions, make sure you understand the material that's presented to you. The disciples didn't do that, and so now they've missed not one, but two distinct opportunities for Christ to tell them, this is what's going to happen next. Like, this is what's going to happen next. And because I'm telling you this, you have to trust me in it, and it elicits a response to you. What we're going to see is that they didn't give the right response to what was going to happen because they didn't understand from Jesus' words what he was talking about. Now they're en route to Jerusalem in Mark chapter 10. It says they're on their way up to Jerusalem in verse 32 with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve. Grab these 12 guys. They've been traveling with them for three years. He took the 12 aside and he told them what was going to happen. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him. We're going into a whole lot of details now and flog him and kill him in three days later he will rise. Chapters before he had told them this is going to happen and now he's saying to him it's going to happen now. Like this week, guys, the time is upon us. That thing that I told you was going to happen is actually about to happen. It's literally coming and explaining to them, this is how you're going to be prepared. And now we've gone through Mark chapter 14. The arrest happened. We've gone through Mark chapter 15. The crucifixion has happened. And now Jesus is dead. And because Jesus' prediction about his death have come true, shouldn't the disciples be more keenly aware of the fact that his resurrection is now pending? You would think. But then we get to Mark chapter 16. And it says, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. This was customary. This was honoring. Now they're going to the wake. They're going to get to be, and it's not one of those where you like greet the family and you take a casserole. That's not the same. They didn't do it like that way back then. They're literally going to view the body and they have spices with them, myrrh and all sorts of other really good smelling things because at this point the body is decaying and the way that you honor it in the moment for your period of grief is to try your best to make it smell a little not bad. And so here they are bringing spices to go and anoint Jesus's body. And the word that's missing there, not that there's ever a word missing from scripture, but from our interpretation, they're looking for a dead body. They're looking for a dead body. So very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. So I, I had this pastor that mentored me early in my ministry. His name is Jimmy Brady. He pastors a church outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. And he used to say to me, because sometimes he would say stuff, and I would just go, for real? And he would say, son, if I tell you the cherries are ripe, you better get your basket. 
If I tell you that, like Jesus, if I tell you this is going to happen, it's going to happen. But the thing about trust, it's not just a word. It's not just a feeling. It's not just an expression. It's an actual action. And these disciples in this moment, these women in this moment, they didn't recall or they didn't understand or they just didn't believe because the men were hiding and the women were embalming. They both assumed that Jesus was dead. And I'll say this, it's in your notes this morning. We put it in print so later on you can quote me on it and get into an argument with somebody else over whether or not your pastor tells the truth or not. Too many people that are serving Christ, like active, are are looking for a dead leader. Like we brought our spices. We're ready to sing a song. We're ready to drop in some dollars. We're ready to bow our heads and read our Bibles and say our prayers. But we're looking for a dead Savior. There should be something alive down in there somewhere about us because of him. There should be some life involved in this. The New Testament gospel writers did not go out of their way to explain the process of crucifixion, to to tell us what happened. We know from history what went on in a Roman crucifixion, what happened during the flogging, what happened during the mocking, what, what actually happened physically to the body in order to introduce death. They didn't have to explain crucifixion to this audience because it was too common. They already knew what it was. They also didn't tell you where babies came from. They just assumed that you knew. And so there's an assumption in scripture that we understand crucifixion. So to go into great detail over something that should have been so commonly understood, Warren Wiersbe writes about that, their aim isn't to arouse our pity. Because I've sat in those messages before. I've preached those messages before. You've sat in those Bible studies before where we go line by line by line of what happened to Jesus when he was beaten literally to the point of death. What happened to Jesus when he's hanging on a cross, gasping for air in his body. Like, we've talked about that, and it arouses a sense of pity in us. It arouses a sense of guilt in us. Like, we can't believe that Christ, who is perfect, would suffer in that way in our place. But it's, it's not meant to invoke our pity. It's, it's meant to solidify our faith. What are you looking for when you come here? I, I, I do insist that sometimes... People are just looking for a crucified Christ. We went on many a mission trip when our girls were little, really little before Simon was even born. They're now 15 and 14 years old, heading into their freshman and sophomore years at Hillsborough. So we all, we all pray for each other this week as kids go back to school and all the things that they'll encounter and what that means. But when they were young, we took them on family mission trips over fall break to Kentucky. Um, And so we're serving in Appalachia in a region. There was this one particular Sunday that we were there, and our team leader, who's now the campus pastor of the Nolensville campus, Jason Hale, was taking us to church on Sunday morning. It was a a country. It was a rural church, and there were two men standing outside the front doors of the church. And Jason, as our leader, is going in first to introduce the fact that, hey, I've got a whole mission team from from Big Creek Missions in Appalachia region of Kentucky, and we've been serving here all week, and we're actually coming to church this Sunday. And while he's standing there having that conversation, being welcomed by these two gentlemen, my girls at the time who were like four and five years old, they weave their way in between his legs and they run inside the church. Jason goes into the doorway and then turns right back around, blocking my way and starts exiting the building and he says, there's a dead body in there. And I said, a what? And he goes, there's a body inside. 
Janice Couch, a lady in the community, had passed away and they were having to wake on Sunday morning, but they didn't announce to the community. We had no idea, no way of knowing that there was a body inside. So now there's my four and five year old little girl running through a sanctuary with a casket up front. So needless to say, we didn't stay at that. We, we, we paid our respects and then left that church to go to another church that morning. We're sitting in the middle of that worship service. We arrived a few minutes late. The songs are going, and now the pastor is up giving announcements, and a lady raises her hand, and she says, Pastor, we need to pray for Janice Couch. And Jason leaned over and said, no, we don't. <laughs> they didn't know. Like, they didn't know that Janice Couch, sweet lady that she was, pillar of the community, fine Christian woman, had already passed, and her body was two churches away being greeted by other people, family members gathering. Like, sometimes I think we come in here on a Sunday morning expecting to find a dead body inside. Because what we bring to Jesus isn't as alive as we think it is. Focusing on a Christ who was crucified when, when we have a risen Savior. History has just about stopped trying to confirm the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and just assumes historically it's been verified by both the biblical record and the proof that's examined this, but then also extra-biblical sources have said to us, Jesus of Nazareth, literally a man that lives, Jesus of Nazareth, literally a man that was crucified. You go to the, the second largest religion in the world and the fastest growing Islam, they don't believe that Jesus Christ was crucified. In fact, Muslim teaching says that it actually denies his death at all and asserts that they honor Christ more than we do, refusing to believe that God would permit him to suffer in that way if they only knew. Jesus did die, and we say that it's for our sins. But without the resurrection, salvation is not applied. If Christ Jesus did not defeat death, then that means he didn't cancel out our debt and our death sentence. We need both death and resurrection in order to receive salvation. We serve a risen Savior, and yet so much of, of what we do and the way that we live, looking for a dead body. Like he's alive, and he's called us to be alive. We're looking for a dead savior when we're just checking out the Bible every so often, looking for anecdotal wisdom about how we might solve a problem. We're looking for a dead leader when we want social ammunition so that we can tell people what's wrong with their lives, and don't tell me that people don't use the Bible in that way. He's a dead leader when we're just looking for grace-filled permission to go live any way that we want to live because, oh, there's grace and it's abundant. He's a dead leader when we just want forgiveness of our sins and absolution of it minus the total transformation that's supposed to accompany it. He's a dead leader when we just want to connect with one another culturally and socially and look good in the world around us. He's a dead leader when we want church on Sunday but refuse to live like Christ every single other day. He's a dead leader when we want to use this to ascertain and understand and, and, and hold power and status and whatever this happens to give us, and yet we don't want to submit to him wholly. Some of us brought our spices this morning. We're looking to pay honor and respect to the dead Jesus, and we're good at that. Songs and smiles included, we're, we're good at that. But it's our hearts and our minds and our hands and our lives that are required. That's our trust 
faith-filled response. The goal of this series, the goal of every series, the goal of any interaction, the goal of any service is that we might look inside and find something living, something alive, something brand new, something new that wasn't there before and it only happens if he is alive. If he's not alive, the parables don't matter. If he's not alive, the miracles don't matter. If he's not alive, our songs don't matter. If he's not alive, our, our dedication to a community and church, and this, like if he's not alive, nothing else matters. So we serve a risen Savior, and we need both. Romans 4.25, we read it last week, it says he was delivered over to death for our sins. We know that Christ died in our place as the suffering sacrifice for the sins of all humanity. And then the, the other part of the verse is equally as true. And was raised to life for our justification. Gospel Coalition, a writer named Richard Gaffin Jr. says this, the resurrection is often viewed primarily as the awesome miracle that validates the truth of Christianity and the gospel. Like, like we love that. Like, if, 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 the, if the tomb is empty, that means that all these words are true. If the tomb is empty, that means that Genesis and the creation story and, and, and Noah and the flood and Moses and the Red Sea and David and Goliath, if Jesus' tomb is empty, then that means all those other parts of it are true. And we can rest easy that the Bible is somehow believable. Like, it's, it's just validating what we say. But it's so much more than just a crowning piece of evidence. Much more. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says, if Christ has not been raised, if he only died in your place, then your faith is futile. You're still stuck in your sins. So y'all better get your spices. Bring them to church on Sunday. The resurrection is as much a part of the salvation equation as is the crucifixion of Jesus. So, so Mark continues. The young guy in white addressed the women don't be alarmed in verse 6 he said you're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified he is risen he is not here see the place where they laid him but go tell his disciples and Peter he is going ahead of you into Galilee there you will see him just as he told you so I told you the Bible said told you so like it's right there just as he told you and then it says, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Too many people considering Christ, maybe even people here today, too many people considering Christ feel too far fallen to find him. They just feel too far fallen, too far away. And I love what Mark said. He says, go and tell his disciples and Peter. Peter who denied him. Peter, who denied ever knowing him and following him, he gets to know too. Like, you're never too far fallen. You're never too far away. Your sins are, are never too grave to be included in this miracle and in this knowledge of what Christ has done in order to save you. People so often feel way too far gone for the love of Christ to lift them out of the pits that they're in. And sadly, the church is there with the ladder holding them down. Have you heard of religious trauma? The idea that people have been so hurt by church, so hurt when they were growing up as a part of student ministry, so beaten down by people who were 
supposed to love them that they've now walked away from church and can't even imagine coming to Christ simply because of the trauma and the ways that they've been treated. Too many people feel too far gone, but they're not. You go tell the disciples, tell Peter too. Make sure he knows he's still included. And we won't even get to the end of the book of John where Jesus literally reinstates him himself. And we won't even get to the fact that the church that we're a part of to this day, thousands of years ago, was literally built on the back of a confession that Peter boldly made in front of a crazed audience over what was actually happening in their midst. We're built on the back of a confession of a guy who had just days before denied even knowing Christ. None of us are too far gone. Like, it's for us. This passage of scripture might as well have said, please, go tell his disciples, and Nick Allen, make sure he knows too. Please, go tell his disciples, and Kathy, make sure, sh- make sure she knows. This is for her too. Go tell his disciples and Jeff. Make sure Jeff knows. This is for him too. Go tell his disciples and Mary. He's, she's included in this. Go tell his disciples and Will. Make sure he never feels like he's too far gone. That Christ includes him. Make sure he knows not only about the death, but that Christ is alive. And then it says, trembling and bewildered, they went from the tomb, but they didn't say anything because they were afraid. There are so many times in our lives, certainly in mine, how many times in your life has fear just rendered you frozen and ineffective for the gospel call that you are commanded and empowered to go out and give people so that they get to know about Jesus too? You're included. Not only are you included, you're called. Some translations, very few these days, of our modern English translations stop right there at verse 8. They give us a caveat, a disclaimer, to let us know that the rest of this chapter, verses 9 through 20, were not included in the oldest manuscripts. And what that means is of all the manuscripts of Mark that we found, there is a percentage of those that have been dated and are the oldest that do not include verses 9 through 20. And so we have to put that out there as a caveat that it may not have originally been written by Mark. But all of the early church fathers assumed that these verses were a part of the most accurate manuscripts. In fact, 99% of those that we have uncovered from as early as we've uncovered them, they actually include these words. And so this edition keeps Mark from being the lone gospel that doesn't actually have a a, a face-to-face resurrection account of Jesus. Like Matthew tells what happened when Jesus came back. Luke tells what happened when Jesus came back. John tells what happened and the specific encounters and the conversations that Jesus had with people when he came back. And in order to prevent Mark from being the one gospel that doesn't have some sort of account of that, these words, perhaps not necessarily by Mark himself, but by another apostle in the moment who was copying and transcribing the words, you just have to know we have them here, so we should consider them. It says in verse 9, when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared. And 1 Corinthians confirms that for us, that he appeared first to the women, and then to Peter, and then to like a multitude of 500 plus people. Like, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. Well, that was a crazy story. She went and told those 
verse 10, who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. They're literally mourning and weeping because they think he's dead. They didn't understand all the words that he spoke in chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 10 of the book of Mark when he said, I will die. But then three days later, just hang on, I will rise. They're still considering him dead, and it says they did not believe. Man. Then it says, after Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. This is literally stranger on the road to Emmaus, a story from Luke. And it says, these returned and they reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. So now we've not believed Mary Magdalene and the women. Now we've not believed the two guys that were walking with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And then it says, later Jesus did appear to the eleven. Because, you know, we're saying Judas at this point. As they were eating... He rebuked them for their lack of faith. If you're a person who likes to underline stuff in your analog Bible, I don't know how you go about underlining stuff on your digital Bibles, but if you're holding an analog Bible today, this is a word that would be worth underlining. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal. Underline that, stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. So verse 15, he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. It's a a model of the Great Commission. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs, this is the freaky part, and these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. I'm okay with that. They will speak in new tongues. Hey, I'm okay with that. They will pick up snakes with their hands. I'm going to draw a firm line right here. That's a hard pass, Jesus. I don't know how I feel about that. I'm so glad that the Lord did not call me to be a pastor in a Snake Hamlin church. Um, They're really few and far between, but we do have them in Tennessee. And I think as a part of the Appalachia region of eastern Kentucky, there were not, in fact, snakes the day that we walked into that tiny little white church. Um, There was, however, a dead body. Snakes they did not find. Um, They will drink deadly poison. It will not hurt them at all. Again, hard pass. Um, They will place their hands on sick people. I'm all right with that. And they will get well y'all if you walk i'm just going to give you this as a caveat it's not in your message notes this morning you can quote me on it if you need to if you walk into a church and the pastor is holding a snake please walk back out like just turn around like if you walk in and instead of holy communion they're passing you something with a skull and crossbones on the front of it and it says deadly poison in the fine print please just say thank you and walk out It says in verse 19, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, and he sat at the right hand of God, and then the disciples went out and preached everywhere. Not afraid anymore. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. I am less concerned. People have written books and had major arguments and falling away from faith over what the end of the book of Mark says or does not say. I am far less concerned with the part about the snakes than I am the part about the disciples. Because two times it says they didn't believe. Verse 10, they didn't believe. Verse 13, they, they did not believe. I, I'm, I'm far less concerned with the part about the deadly poison than I am with the part about us. Do we believe? Which do you struggle with the most this morning? Is it lack of faith or is it stubborn refusal? Faith or the lack of, it's literally the word that means unbelief. It's apistos. It means unfaithfulness faithlessness, 
unbelief, weakness of faith. You know the story that we addressed this summer in Mark chapter 9 where the boy's father had come and begged Jesus to heal his son. Jesus talked to him about faith and he said, Lord, I, I believe, but please help me overcome my unbelief. Some of us just have that. Like, it's just hard. Maybe it's because you're real smart and, like, degreed and educated. And, it, and at some point, you just have a divide over whether or not this could be historically and archaeologically and scientifically proven in your life. And so there's just a great debate and some sort of divide in your life over whether or not this is true pray that same prayer um, that the little boy's dad prayed like I believe but only this much could you could you help make up the difference God could you help my unbelief but then we also wrestle with the idea of a stubborn refusal it's the Greek word skleirakardia and you'll hear the word cardia at the end because it's where we get the word heart. It's cardiac. Cardiac muscle. Cardiac arrest. It, it's a compound word that literally means hardness of heart. The other time that that vocabulary word was used in scripture was when Jesus was describing to the people in Mark 10 that the whole reason that Moses gave them those commands about divorce was because of the hardness of their hearts. That old idea of being hard the sklareok part of it is literally from John chapter 6 where Jesus had just given his disciples a really difficult teaching about his life and his blood. And scripture literally says many of the disciples turned away and quit following him at that point because the teaching was too hard. Th there's some parts of this that aren't just hard to believe. There's some parts of this that we just refuse to believe. And if there's parts of this that you refuse to believe, it's because you brought your burial spices. It's because somehow or another, Christ is still dead. And he's alive, and you know it. There's something new in you, something living in your gut, and it needs to be discovered. When, when you believe these words, it's more than just the songs that we sing. It's more than just the, the tithes that we bring. It's more than just the, the smiles and the kindness that we offer. It's more than the heads that we bow. It, it's more than the words. It's we're alive inside when we believe that Jesus Christ was crucified and resurrected. And when we believe every other word start to finish in this word and it inspires an application and a dedication and a commitment to Christ, we're alive. So we don't need to bring burial spices because he's alive. And it's a real nice gesture to walk in with some spices to embalm a dead body, but death stinks. Death is death. And no amount of burial spices or act body spray or whatever else we bring into the equation is, is ever going to change that. Only life changes that. Some of us on Sundays could stand to do a little bit of a check. 
because there's parts of our lives that don't smell very alive and don't feel very living in response to the fact that Christ came back. If he did, everything we do, everything that we say, every way that we interact in the world should reflect the fact that we know Jesus is alive. This morning on your connection card that Kathy mentioned a few minutes ago, gosh, we would love for every first-time guest to take a moment to fill out as much of this as you would give us so that we can reach out to you later this week. you got a few more minutes, so grab a pen and, and take a few moments to do that. But on the back, it's a little different this week. We've still allowed some spots for prayer requests, although it's a little shorter, and that's because we put an opportunity to respond at the top. And I just want to walk you through that. And I would love for every single person, regardless of how long you've been here or how committed you are or whatever, to, to take a moment to fill that out and, and to be bold in it. Perhaps today you're saying, okay, I will A, accept that Jesus Christ is alive and trust his gift of salvation for the first time. It doesn't matter if you've heard this a hundred times. It doesn't matter if you've done something similar before. If today Christ is alive for you, check that box. Maybe it's B, I believe, and, and I believe so much that I'm going to take the next step of being baptized. I'm actually going to put that trust into action. I'm going to make that trust a, a public declaration of being immersed in water and telling the story of Christ dying and coming back to life. That's literally what we do during the picture of baptism. We say Christ died and was buried, but then he raised to walk in a brand new life, and that's the same for the believer. Our old self is gone, the dead parts, they stink, and we're alive now in Christ, fragrant before God. Maybe it's C, and I imagine this will be many of us. I'm already committed to Jesus, and I'm attempting every day to live my life as if he's alive. Every morning, every evening, every problem, because there are many, I'm trusting that Christ is alive. Or maybe D, it's just, hey, I don't know, but I'm willing to talk to somebody about it. That somebody, it might be me, that's okay. We'll talk about what it means to know and trust that Jesus Christ really is alive. And I resonate so much with people who are like, I just don't see how in the world that can be true. Like, I just don't know. Like, I'm, I'm fine with the wisdom. I'm fine with the teachings about love. I'm fine with the teachings about generosity. I'm fine with the idea of community. But the fact that this literally happened, I don't know if I can get there. Let's talk. Maybe you'll check that box and we'll reach out this week and we'll have a cup of coffee because I love coffee. And we'll talk about what it means to believe and live that Jesus Christ is alive. Would you take just a moment to complete that? Make sure your name is on it somewhere. Add prayer requests because we do really covet the, the opportunity to pray with you and for you. And then in just a moment, as ushers come with baskets, you'll be invited to drop those cards in. Do you believe he's alive? And does it affect every area of your life? Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you that you are, in fact, alive that you are a risen Savior, that we don't come here today looking for a dead hero. But we find you alive. And not only alive in the world, but alive in us because we commit ourselves to you. It's in your holy and precious name that we pray today, Jesus, and to you that we dedicate all that we are. Amen.
That's the end of this episode on the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network. Before you go, we invite you to think about who you could share this sermon with. Click the subscribe button so you can be notified each time we release a new sermon. Did you know Rolling Hills publishes other podcasts too? Check out the Making History Parenting Podcast, Men's Leadership Network, and the RH Women's As You Go Podcast. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. We're glad you spent some time with us today. Have a great week.